Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Jimmy Song is a cowboy hat-sporting Bitcoin educator, developer, and entrepreneur. He's also the author of Programming Bitcoin and The Little Bitcoin Book. And in addition, he's a Bitcoin fellow at Blockchain Capital, a lecturer at the University of Texas, and an internationally renowned speaker at crypto conferences. Now, in the age of COVID, when I am airing this episode, we don't do that in person anymore, but I have seen him out and about, and he is thebomb.com for sure. He's an avid open source contributor, mostly in Bitcoin, and also the instructor of a two-day workshop for programmers called Programming Blockchain. So what's all the hubbub about this brilliant, focused, irreverent, (laughs) entirely card-carrying member of the BTC is king and everything else is garbage fan club? Well, I can show you better than I can tell you with this episode. So let's dive right in and see why I'm a card-carrying member of the Jimmy Song fan club. Time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. So Jimmy Song is a Bitcoin educator, developer, and entrepreneur. I've spent some time talking about his role as what he may describe and certainly others describe as Bitcoin maximalist. His goal at the end of the day, and he'll tell us more about that, is to bring sound money to the world. He's one of my favorite people in the space because he's a straight shooter, no holds barred, and I've learned a lot from him over the years. I look forward to sharing that conversation with you. So, Jimmy, welcome. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Absolutely. I'm always really excited to speak with you. I thank you for always coming and speaking to my students. But now I have your undivided attention for me and the others who may hear, right? So selfishly, I'm grateful that you're on the show as well. And what I want to do with the time that we have is to set the stage for the origins of Bitcoin. I love when you tell the Bitcoin story. Then we can talk a bit about where we are today. It's interesting what's happening with the price and a lot of the volatility that people speak about and the upward trajectory and and maybe your insights about why that might be happening. And I'd like Mm -hmm. to get your insights on the happening as well and, and what that means. And then we'll talk a bit about the future. There's so much discussion about the various use cases right, for the the framework or the rails or the protocols that support a use like cryptocurrency generally and Bitcoin in particular, Bitcoin being the OG protocol. (laughs) And as we compare and contrast all of the dozens, hundreds of purported use cases, your views on what the true meaning of Bitcoin is for people and also for the ecosystem. But let's start with where Bitcoin began. Some, where are we in the 11th year at this point? Yeah, so uh, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote the white paper and released it to the Cypherpunks mailing list on October 31st, 2008. And if you remember that time, uh, that was right around the TARP bailouts. Uh, you know, I think uh, both presidential nominees at that time like went to the White House and they were all talking about it. 
And essentially, uh, they came up with a bill that was something like $700 billion being injected into the banks in order to provide liquidity because most of them, or at least some of them, seemed like they were not solvent. Based on that act and many other, many subsequent ones, um, you know, that's that era of some serious monetary expansion. And that was uh, the era in which Bitcoin was born. October 31st, I think earlier that month was when, uh, you know, sort of that summit happened. It was right before the presidential election was about to happen. And, uh, you know, that um, and it was a global financial crisis. And that was the era into which Bitcoin was born. Three months later, uh, January 3rd, 2009, was when the Genesis block was mined, or sometime after that. We don't know exactly when. But uh, one of the things that's in the Genesis block, and uh, specifically the Coinbase transaction, is the title to the Times newspaper from that day, which said, Chancellor on the Brink of Second Bailouts. This is the Times newspaper from England. Uh, and so that that was uh, that was a very important message for Satoshi to put into the blockchain, like sort of giving us an idea that this infinite money printing, this inter- financial intermediary that's in the middle of all of our transactions was not something that Satoshi agreed with. And that's uh, that's sort of the origin behind it. Of course, like over the next year, like almost nobody used Bitcoin. Right. Uh, it was only really in, until uh, like starting in 2010 that that really happened. But that's that's the actual story of its origin. Tell me about because, you know, Bitcoin is the the digital cash that really mm. stuck, but it wasn't the first. And I guess it wasn't until Nakamoto and this idea of proof of work mm. really took digital cash to the next level. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, there's been there's always been a lot of different, uh, you know, digital cash schemes and almost all of them, unfortunately, were centralized. And that's because nobody really knew how to do it any other way. If you think about just sort of like the digital realm, there's really only two types of things. There's infinitely copyable stuff like MP3s or something like that. And then there's like centralized stuff that's uh, that has to be controlled by somebody. Uh, so these are these include online coupons or concert tickets or something like that. So the only way uh, that before 2008 that anyone thought of to create some sort of digital cash system was to have a central entity issue it. So we've had stuff like there was a startup in '98 uh, called Flues, and they were supposed to be the money for the internet or something like that. Um, right. There's, of course, like, uh, you know, stuff like Linden Dollars or World of Warcraft Gold that's been around, but th- those are specific to those games. Uh, so, you know, that that sort of thing has been around a long time. The reason why Bitcoin was so different was that Satoshi figured out a way to issue and run a system that's decentralized. And that's not something that we actually thought was even possible before 2008. If you think about sort of decentralized currency uh, in the real world, uh, it's it's really stuff like gold or metals or in prisons like sardine cans or something like that. Um, right. Uh, but, you know, in the digital realm, nothing like that existed because things just weren't scarce until... Uh, Satoshi married the idea of proof of work, uh, which is uh, hash cash from 
Adam Back, uh, which was a paper that he wrote a while back um, in, I think, 2003 or so, and mm-hmm. with this idea of, uh, you know, di- digital ledger and all that. And he basically made it so that you can have a scarce commodity that's decentralized. And that's how Bitcoin was born. It, it had this unique quality of decentralization, which nothing before it has, and I would argue nothing really after has achieved. There have been a lot of follow-ons and the other coins, the altcoins. There's another name for it. We won't say it on this podcast because my mother listens. Um, But there have been a lot of follow-ons, to be sure, where there might be some type of hard fork off of Bitcoin that has its origins in that protocol, but then portends to do something different, promise something different. Hmm. You're known as a maximalist, right? So... Mm I don't know if you call yourself that, but my understanding of maximalist is it's Bitcoin or it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And I do know that you feel that. So talk to us about that point of view. Well, so uh, the, the the thing about Bitcoin maximalism is that a lot of people seem to think, oh, you're, you're just like a partial person. Like um, I'm cheering for my favorite sports team or mm. my favorite actor for the Oscars or something like that. That's not what it is at all. It's just uh, the premise of Bitcoin maximalism, at least for me, is that it is fun. Bitcoin is fundamentally different than all of the altcoins. And it it relates back to the thing that I said earlier, which is that Bitcoin has decentralization. All of the altcoins do not have decentralization. And decentralization is the thing that makes it interesting. There are tons of other things that were centralized, that were issuing money or tried some sort of scheme like that. None of them really succeeded, mostly because the government would shut them down or you know, they would run out of uh, funding to run their centralized service and whatnot. Uh, but Bitcoin is is decentralized. All these altcoins sort of run under the same model as everything that came before it. And decentralization is not something that you can just sort of bolt onto something. It has to almost it, it's we, we don't know that much about decentralization or how to add that to a system. In, in fact, it's it's extremely rare. Uh, Bitcoin right. being the one exception to that. So. In a sense, uh, it, it's just sort of looking at things from a technical perspective and saying, this one is decentralized. This is more like gold. All of the other things are more like the U.S. dollar, which is, uh, you know, printed essentially at will by the Fed. I, I think I read a number and uh, like since October, they've printed something like two hundred and fifty billion dollars into the U.S. economy, um, wow. which I mean, like there, there's only about 15 trillion dollars in M2 money that exists. Uh, So, I mean, that's about like something like 3% monetary expansion just in like the last three or four months, which is, which is crazy, right? Like, uh, so when you look at Bitcoin, it's not like everything else. Everything else is an apple. This one's an orange, right? Like it's, it's very, very different. It's, it's not two like types of apple or something like that. This, this is, a very different thing. And for me, that's what makes it interesting. And that's what gives the property of self-sovereignty over your own money, whereas centralized things naturally don't. If it's centralized, uh, like the US dollar, for example, someone can basically take it away. And this this is one of the one of the reasons why Bitcoin's gotten to be so popular. It's because uh, you know, nobody can just sort of come in and take it. Right. The thing that put Bitcoin on the map was in 2010. When WikiLeaks lost all of its bank accounts, the last sort of thing that they had was a PayPal account. 
And PayPal basically cut them off because they were getting pressure from the U.S. government due to uh, some papers that they released, uh, you know, that that were not flattering to the U.S. government. And uh, and they were looking for something that they can use. Uh, I mean, nobody would like give them an account anywhere. So right. uh, they found this thing called Bitcoin. And that's what really put Bitcoin on the map. And interestingly enough, Satoshi was totally against WikiLeaks using Bitcoin. Because he, you know, at least on the forums, if you look at the post, Satoshi thought that it was just like way too much too quickly. And uh, Satoshi wanted the currency to grow a little bit more first before a big large use case like WikiLeaks would come through. But, you know, I mean, as it happened, they they took donations in Bitcoin. Uh, A lot of the work that goes into WikiLeaks uh, still runs off of the initial Bitcoins that they received in 2010, which is rather remarkable. Wow, that is saying something, to be sure. Well, that makes me think of a... That's a whole other episode. We have to to come back to that. Um, But that makes me think of Mm -hmm. also why... Why Bitcoin has endured, a lot of what you just said speaks to why, but I, I can't even call it a resurgence. It's a surge of more eyeballs from people, not original cypherpunks and those who have been dedicated to the space and building in the space, but others, you know, and, and that's part and parcel of this whole conversation about what will happen in terms of scaling and mass adoption and all of those things and whether that is really the goal. And whether that can happen, mm-hmm. some of uh, what I think is happening now is that you have legacy systems who are trying to benefit from cryptographically secured protocols, but still maintain their centralization. Right. So that leads me to like mm-hmm. branded mm-hmm. coins, corporate coins, every many countries and central banks are now talking about their own version of digital cash. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, there's certainly a a desire to upgrade IT infrastructure in almost every single industry, right? Like, and and this this has been true for the last 30 years or so. I think the last time pretty much everyone did an upgrade was maybe Y2K. Um, Right. So we're like 20 years past that. So there's a lot of uh, IT infrastructure upgrades that pretty much every industry can use. Unfortunately, um, there's not enough developer talent to be able to service all of the needs. And most of these industries just simply don't want to pay for it. It works well enough as it is. But there's a group of people that are just like, hey, we we want some of these cool goodies. Um, And it's, uh, you know, a lot of them use sort of blockchain as an excuse, as a way to get in the door in a sales meeting or something like that. And, you know, like a lot of the stuff that you're speaking about, okay, well, now you can use some cryptographic proofs in a lot of this stuff. It, it turns out that that's actually not that important for most industries. Mm. Um, if you go to court and you have, uh, you know, an email from the vendor that says, you know, they're going to provide you with something, um, that's usually good enough evidence. You don't, you don't need a cryptographically signed smart contract on some blockchain that's uh, that's there that to present in court in order to show that this person knew exactly what they were agreeing to that's not how law, I, i'm sure you of all people would know right. that uh that that's not something that people necessarily need so i mean in a sense like all of that stuff like as far as the cryptographic aspect of it that's been available for the last 30 years you know i mean like 
digital signatures have been around a very long right. time. It's it's just that nobody really thought that they were really that useful. Um, and you know, you like audits and stuff like that. There's all sorts of backup systems. There are uh, th- these devices called Write Once, uh, Read Many that a lot of financial institutions use for compliance reasons. And, you know, essentially you can add whatever you want to that data and have like a permanent record of whatever it is that you mm-hmm. did. Um, and, you know, you, you don't need a blockchain per se for, for any of that. Uh, so in, in a sense, a lot of what these, uh, at least in my view, like a lot of uh, the hype around blockchain is not really legitimate. It's It's more hype to sell IT infrastructure services to industries that are stubbornly resisting upgrading or think it's too costly. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first... A word on an exciting opportunity. The Tech Intersect podcast is released to the public every Friday. But as an Advantage Evans member, you'll receive first listen access and live Tech Intersect Connect video chats. Premium members also receive a copy of my ebook, The Gen Xer's Guide to Upskilling in a Web 3.0 World, and unlimited access to the video chat replays and bonus episodes. My pro members, ready to leverage what they've listened to and learned, receive access to the Upskilling Self-Guided course and VIP group coaching calls. So as you can see, Advantage Evans membership adds substantial value to your podcast experience. And there are three ways to take advantage. (laughs) See what I did right there? Of all that the Tech Intersect podcast has to offer. So subscribe now and let's listen, learn and leverage together. And now, back to the conversation. It leads me to think about some of the common questions that folks who are on the outside looking into this particular industry may ask you about. I I can imagine you get the questions I do, too. I don't answer them most times, but I am fascinated with the the, the price movement. That's the, the sexy, sensational thing that, for example, I'm looking at my phone right now, Bitcoin, is at uh, the equivalent of in USD ten thousand three hundred seventy two, and change. Um, it, this is the first time that we've been at uh, above ten k for some time, and it's like a brief dip, maybe forty eight hours ago, and back up. And I, you know, the Twitter chatter around price and and to the moon and all of that. How much do you pay attention to the price movement? Or are you more focused on the dev side or are are you the perfect combination of the two? 
<laughs> well, so I'm a developer, right. so of course, um, you know, like that's my forte. So that that's what I study. That's what I do. I, I look at code. I try to teach people how to code. I talk about all of that. But economics is uh, is definitely a big secondary inter- interest of mine. And looking at the economic aspect, you really can't ignore the price because. Price is a lot of valuable information. Um, it's the market clearing price for this particular good. So uh, for me, yeah, I, I definitely pay attention to price. But uh, more than that, the economic reality or the incentive system that's underneath it, uh, for, and in particular with Bitcoin, uh, we have a very strange situation where we have a fixed supply of something. Right. And that that is extremely credible. Um, and that's, uh, I mean, other than like art from artists that are already dead, uh, you you really don't have stuff like that. Or, I mean, like you can always like tr- sort of like counterfeit like artwork by Degas or something mm-hmm. like that. It's um, with Bitcoin, you, you really can't fake it. So it, it's a fungible commodity that has a fixed cap. And we, we haven't really had that before. Even something like gold um, inflates at around two or 3% a year because there's always new gold being mined or being mm. found from the bottom of the oceans or something like that. So it, it's, a, it's a very, you know, from an economics perspective, there, there's a lot of interesting things about it. Uh, and, uh, and clearly price reflects all of these forces that are coming together. So yeah, I definitely pay attention. Right. And what you what you are touching on is this idea of scarcity as well. That's hardwired into the protocol have only 21 million mind. And for those who don't know what on earth that means, I'm going to drop several Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto one on one summaries in, in the show notes. So hang in there with us. But this is a really important conversation that goes to the heart of the value of of Bitcoin specifically. I want to also talk about and one, define it for our listeners, the havening of Bitcoin, what that means, what impact that has on scarcity going forward, because I think that will also have some impact, obviously, on, on price action. Yeah, absolutely. So Bitcoin is a really interesting beast in the, in the sense that there is a hard cap as to how many Bitcoins there ever will be. And uh, if you don't know what that number is, it's 21 million Bitcoins. And one Bitcoin is equal to 100 million Satoshi. So it's something like 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis that will ever exist. So that, mm-hmm. that's how many there are. Um, that is uh, the upper limit, uh, the, the absolute upper limit on that. And the, the happening is basically a way to put those new Bitcoins into existence. And, the, so, and this is what we in the technical Bitcoin community call the emission schedule or how the coins come into existence. And basically, if you think of Bitcoin as a ledger, about every 10 minutes, there's a new page in the ledger. And along with that page is a special transaction called the Coinbase transaction, which gives the miner the right to print new Bitcoin. And this is how Bitcoins come into existence. So for the first 210,000 blocks, or what we call the first reward error, it was 50 Bitcoins per block. So if you multiply those two numbers, 50 Bitcoins times 210,000, that's 10 and a half million. So out of the possible 21 million that will ever exist, we get halfway there in the first 210,000 blocks. 
Now, if you multiply 210,000 blocks by the average time that they're supposed to take, which is 10 minutes, that ends up being 2.1 million minutes, which is very, very close to four years. It's, it's actually slightly bit under. It's something like uh, 3.995 years or something like that. But that's, that's what the halvening is, is every four years, the reward drops in half. So the uh, first 210,000 blocks, it was 50 Bitcoins per block. The next 210,000 blocks, it was 25 Bitcoins per block. So 25 times 210,000 is 5.25 million Bitcoins. And that's how many new Bitcoins came into existence in the second reward era. We're currently in the third reward era. So it, it halved again from 25 to 12 and a half. So in this era, it's a half of 5.25, which is 2.6125, I think. something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how many million Bitcoins will be mined in this reward era. So every halving, you get halfway towards 21 million from wherever you are. And we're going to go into a new halving right around May 10th is what it looks like. So May 10th, the reward will draw from 12.5 to 6.25 and we'll be entering the fourth reward era. And each, as you can see, like you go halfway each time, you never actually kind of get there. Uh, So like uh, the, the asymptotic limit of Bitcoin is like just a tiny hair under 21 million, but we call it 21 million for, um, you know, convenience sake. But that's, that's, essentially what the having is. And it's going to be an interesting event. I'll tell you that much. That is the best explanation of it that I've ever heard. So I'm happy that you are on this particular show as you did it. <laughs> um, I want this episode to go to the moon. So maybe this will uh, will help. All right. I'm, I'm noticing time and, and I want to be mindful of yours. So what you've described takes us to where we are today. What are your thoughts? Uh, Well, there are two things I want to talk about. This question about the thoughts about going forward, where do you see us, you know, in two, five, 10 years? And then I also want to spend some time talking about the little Bitcoin book, or is it the little Mm -hmm. book of Bitcoin? No, it's the little Bitcoin Bitcoin. Bitcoin book. Okay, little Bitcoin book. And I want to talk about that too, because one of the other things I really adore about how you move in this space is your commitment to education, which at the heart of it is, is the real. When I think about people who talk about adoption, they're always talking about people using cryptocurrency generally, Bitcoin specifically. And I'm also interested in all of the other areas that inform and influence the space. Everybody may not hold Bitcoin, or they certainly may not mine it or other types of crypto, but there are a lot of ways to be involved in this particular space. Um, And education, obviously, I'm biased, but it's certainly one of them. But let's start here. The first thing, where are we going from here? If you could uh, help us look into your crystal ball, um, where are we going? And so used to having everything in front of them right away that we forget that innovation just takes time. I, I myself, I get frustrated too. Why? And you know, this is being one of my best friends is, hey, I talk to you all the time. Hey, man, I'm frustrated in the fact that I can't seem to just get there in mm-hmm. the next day. But that's just not how these things work. Right. Innovation needs to be planned out. It needs to be very methodical. And then when it finally hits, that's when it seems like to everyone else that it, it sort of just came out of nowhere. But to you, you know the amount of dedication that it took over that time. 
Yeah, great question. Uh, I the the thing that helps Bitcoin more than anything, in my opinion, is time. And mm. uh, as time passes, uh, you know, you go through uh, what Nasib Taleb would call like sort of like jarring events that sort of shake out anything that's weak. And eventually you get to a point where, you know, a system is so anti-fragile that it, it grows and grows and grows. Mm. Um, and more people trust it and more people are willing to put money in it and so on. About like five years from now, I, I, even like four years from now, um, after this having and maybe the next having, we'll be starting in the fifth reward era. And at that point, the supply of Bitcoin, new Bitcoin coming into the ecosystem will be very small compared to the supply that's already in the system. So based on that, I think, uh, you know, the next four years or so will be pretty critical for Bitcoin adoption because there will, um, you know, people will have gone from, oh, is that still a thing to, oh, my goodness, this is really a big thing. Um, right. People tend to trust things that they've seen around for a while. Right. Like uh, there are services like Netflix, which uh, when it first came out, I was very skeptical. You know, you have to order DVDs and like uh, mail them back and stuff like that. How long is this place going to be in business? Do I really want to... Uh, you know, send them money. But as they stick around, you tend to trust it more. And then they become more uh, of something where, you know, you, you can't even think about life without it. Um, right. And, and that's, I think, the way that Bitcoin's going to go is that it's going to really get into the minds of people, uh, many of whom have just really only dabbled in it or heard about it. Uh, it feels a lot like um, sort of like that 94, to 99 era, uh, uh, you know, with the internet, a lot of people right. had heard about the internet, but they weren't really on it. And like, maybe they knew somebody that was on it. And they're, you know, they'd ask them like, Oh, is it really as sketchy as people <laughs> right. are saying something like that? Uh, but then like, by like 99, 2000, just absolutely everybody was on it. And it's like, we like, uh, I, I have a friend that asks people uh, this particular question, which is, would you rather live without internet or without air travel? And almost everybody picks internet. And he's like, you know, that only really came in like the last 20 years. Like right. air travel has been around a lot longer. I can't believe people choose uh, internet over air travel. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's how ubiquitous internet has become. And I suspect that Bitcoin will have a similar sort of like adoption curve where uh, you know, the people that own it, they'll they'll just be like, wow, I, I can't believe I lived without this thing uh, because it like it does so much for me in terms of storing value and so on. And especially for people that are young today, you know, five years from now, maybe they'll have graduated college. So they'd be like like junior or senior in high school. Uh, you know, they'll they'll have pretty much grown up with Bitcoin all of their lives. And right. For them, it'll be something that's uh, that's kind of like the internet is to somebody that was born in like '95 or something like that. It's 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 just very ubiquitous for them. So, um, I yeah, I mean that's the direction that I expect it to go. But I know that everybody wants to know about price, so I, I will <laughs> say something about that. In the next four years or so, I suspect it'll be you know in the fifty to a hundred thousand range, uh, possibly past that, depending on whether or not the market front runs the next happening or not. Right. Uh, but, you know, that that's, uh, you know, at that point, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. There, there's a really interesting economic uh, analysis of this whole phenomenon from uh, this guy, Plan B. Uh, he's on Twitter, on Medium, but he has this whole economic 
basis for what Bitcoin's value uh, price is. And it, it maps very well. And according to his model, it should reach a uh, hundred thousand before the end of 2021. And if his model is correct, then by before the end of 2025, we should see, you know, I mean, possibly in the 500,000 to a million range. So we'll see. Wow. All right. Well, I'm going to keep having you back on to, and we'll, we'll check in from time to time. We might be checking in from some private plane with internet. So I'd like them both. I'm not giving up either one. I'd like to travel with undisturbed internet. So we shall see. All right, sir. Tell me about the little Bitcoin book, um, why you wrote it. I, If I recall, you have co-authors as well. Mm-hmm. And I like the way that you move through the information. I, it's one of the things that you do very well. And I know that's why you have educator in you, because you're able mm-hmm. to distill really complex topics um, into a digestible form. So tell me why you wrote it, what's in it, what how it benefits people. Yeah, so um, there were a bunch of us at the Oslo Freedom Forum. And if you don't know what the Oslo Freedom Forum is, it's, uh, it's a gathering of human rights activists from all around the world that happens in Oslo every, every year. And you might be asking, why is Jimmy there? He's like a Bitcoin tech guy. And I was asking myself the same question. <laughs> um, uh, but it turns out that Bitcoin is actually very, very critical to human rights. And the chief strategy officer for the Human Rights Foundation, Alex Gladstein, actually invited me to go there. And the ostensible reason that he invited me was to teach all of these human rights activists about Bitcoin. Because guess what? Most of these uh, human rights activists have monetary problems Mm. because wherever they're operating, um, the government does not like what they're doing. So the first thing that they do is shut off their bank accounts. And this makes uh, like doing anything very difficult, even uh, stupid stuff like, uh, you know, going from point A to point B or buying food or whatever. So it makes uh, their work very difficult. And he wanted me to teach them about Bitcoin and, uh, you know, figure out how to get the donor money into the boots on the ground that they have and so on. So that's why I was there. Um, and he invited a bunch of other Bitcoin people and, uh, and we were hanging out and we we're talking about writing a book. And, uh, and I had read this thing about uh, something called a book sprint, which is very similar to a coding or a design sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, if you don't know what that is, it's basically like writing an app in like six days or something like that or uh, designing something in six days. Um, And I wanted to do something similar with a book. And we decided, hey, let's uh, make this group right here do it. And it turned out that it was me and seven co-authors were from five different continents, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Timmy's from Nigeria and uh, Elena's from Eastern Europe and Luis is from the Philippines and, uh, you know, uh, Alejandro's from Venezuela and so on. Um, you know, we, we, we had a group and we decided to write it as a way to not just help uh, newbies, but like, uh, you know, our audience was to some degree like the very people that we were talking to at the Oslo Freedom Forum. Right. right? The people that wouldn't necessarily know about it, but could definitely use uh, all of the conveniences that Bitcoin affords. So that was our audience. And that that's really who it's for. It's for somebody that really doesn't know very much about Bitcoin or really even about money. And uh, and this is why we spend like the whole first chapter on what's wrong with money today and how it has all sorts of third party intermediaries and so on and how that affects the system in all sorts of negative ways. But, you know, it's, it's meant to be a, a really simple introduction 
and it's a very quick read. It's um, it's it's not very many pages. I think it's uh, total is like 120, and a lot of it is Q and A. So you can literally sit down and read through it in a few hours. But the idea behind the book was to make it very easy to onboard people because uh, you know we've all had these conversations with somebody uh, who finds out. At least I have. Right. Who finds out that I'm into Bitcoin, and they start asking questions and trying to plug hole, uh, you know, poke holes into why Bitcoin won't work, and you get into a debate. Next thing you know, it's like been four hours. Right. So instead of spending four hours of your time, you can just give them this book and say, <laughs> you know what, just read this book and let me know what you think. Instead of, uh, you know, getting into a four-hour conversation each time. I find that starting with what money is 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 a mind-blowing moment for most people because mm. we've had the luxury or the misfortune, I believe, of, of being so um, distant from the actual control and understanding of money and what that is. And starting there is really important. So you get to, I mean, you can get to the technical things if people want to know that, but understanding what money is, how it functions, how transfers of value function, um, what, you know, the role of government in that and mm. what it looks like absent government where you can actually still transact, interact, move money and other things of value is really, that, that's, as I'm saying it, because, you know, I completely nerd out on this, it's really exciting. Um, I think it also is terrifying to most people to think about actually having control over their money. They say they want it, but what it means to actually do that is something entirely different, uh, particularly in this space. You, you send something to the wrong type of wallet, you lose your ledger, you lose control of your private keys, not your keys, not your crypto. All of those things terrifies people. So it will be interesting to see over the next decade as people um, have more opportunities to either buy, trade, or at least earn Bitcoin, other forms of crypto. I know there are certainly other projects and companies working on other things to build on top of blockchain protocols. And time will tell. You know, a supply chain is an, an interesting one and and we shall see. But for now, and on this particular episode, we're talking Bitcoin. <laughs> um, and I thank you so much for your time and your attention. I will absolutely share a link to all of your work, in particular, the Little Bitcoin book. And I really want to support listeners in, in really trying to make sense of this. Don't bury yourself and choose not to pay attention because this is not the future. It's now. And by now, I mean yesterday. And take it in small bits and bites, uh, pun intended, to try and really make sense of it. This is transformative. And you can always say that even, you know, in our 11th year for Bitcoin in particular, you're still on the leading edge. So, Jimmy, thank you so much for the work that you do and for spending time with us today. Jimmy's goal, clearly, is to bring what he calls sound money to the world. And Bitcoin, he says, is the one chance at defunding and decentralizing governmental power. And making more developers for the ecosystem is his passion. And so is the past, present, and future of Bitcoin. He believes it allows for self-sovereignty, encourages entrepreneurship, protects against rampant rent-seeking behavior, and on the innovation side, it allows people to find gaps in the market where they can utilize their skills and talents to bring value to civilization. It's the people's money. 
And it's not about speed or programmability, but sovereignty and decentralization. So I look forward to seeing what Bitcoin and Jimmy have in store for the future. That's all for now. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.